According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 11. We're in the Abrahamic portion of this Hall of Fame of Faith. Uh, I guess we would call it the Abrahamic Exhibit. He gets a whole hall to himself as uh, he has multiple verses. Uh, Abel got a verse. Enoch got a verse and a verse of commentary. Noah got a verse. But now starting with Abraham, we have a significant uh, portion of the entire chapter is consumed with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Abraham and Sarah, and, uh, and these details. Starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And that's where we left off last week. We're going to pick up again here this week these first uh, verses as it relates to Abraham. We'll then have a verse for Sarah in verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And this is the joint test of Abraham and Sarah together, heirs together of the grace of life, facing the same test from their perspective as husband and wife. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Then we have more commentary that comes in verses 13 and following. Verse 13 says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. And this is what we've got to stress, starting with Abraham, going back to our verses this morning in verse 8. Understand the commentary from verse 13 applies back to all of these verses we're looking at. Without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So much of this is going to be our application as well. The things that we see with our spiritual eyes instead of our physical eyes. And the things that we see that are not a future promise, but a present reality that we still look at with the spiritual eyes, not the earthly eyes. As faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. All right, well, let's begin with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you rejoicing that with our spiritual eyes open, Father, we can behold what you show us. The things revealed belong to us and our children forever, Father, and we rejoice that you are a God who uh, reveals. You are a God who unveils mystery doctrine. You are a God who has bestowed upon us all things necessary for life and godliness. I rejoice, Father, that we have the examples of the Old Testament saints we have Abel and Enoch and Noah to look at. We've got Abraham to look at. In so many ways, Abraham is the forefather of, of us, Father, the father of the faithful. And yet we have resources available to us that Abraham never dreamed of. Abraham did not have a canon of Scripture. Not even the Old Testament Scriptures were available to, to Abraham. And yet he believed in God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. I pray that we learn these lessons and we learn that so much more accountable, that we have so much greater accountability than, uh, than any of these characters we look at here this morning. So bless our time of study. Humble us before your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with by faith Abraham... We're looking at verses 8 through 10 this morning that we were looking at. And a week ago, if you were here, we spent almost the entire hour in Genesis. We were reading chapter by chapter through Genesis, and not to read every single verse in those chapters, but to highlight the uh, elements of those stories in which Abraham is living as an alien and a stranger. That we can see the illustration here uh, of verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. 
Because that's exactly what he was doing as he's interacting with, with other kings, as he's interacting with uh, owners of land that he had to pay cash, for example, to obtain a cave for the, for the burial of Sarah. And uh, he submitted to that even though that cave was within his land grant. That cave was rightly his by divine right. God had promised it to him, but God had not yet fulfilled that promise. That's so key. When God makes a promise, we, we submit to him for not only how he makes it, but how he fulfills it. And if there means there's a delay in that fulfillment, God's not a liar. We just wait by faith. And that's what uh, this verse, that's what this whole chapter is, uh, is dealing with. We're going to learn that all of these died in faith without receiving the promises. They're not going to observe the millennial kingdom unfold upon the earth. All of these died in faith. And he was living as an alien in this land. And so that's why when we looked at chapter 12, chapter 13, uh, chapter 14, so in chapter 13 he has to separate himself from, from Lot and he says, choose left or right and I'll go the other direction. Well, why is he doing that? The whole thing is his, left and right. See, but he's living as an alien. He's waiting for God to provide the fulfillment of these promises. And so while he's waiting for God to fulfill the promise, left or right makes no difference to him. Pick a direction. He's fine with whatever because he's living as an alien and a stranger waiting for the Lord to provide. Chapter 14, he has to go to war against four kings. You know, are you prepared to do that with the trained men in your household? See that he was, he went out after, uh, to rescue Lot in uh, that powerful chapter there. And he interacts with Melchizedek. All these things we dealt, dealt with, um, he dealt with Pharaoh. He dealt with Abimelech. All these kings that he dealt with. The, um, production of Ishmael is a low point because it was not by faith that he had the baby with Hagar. It was only by faith that he had the baby with Sarah. And that's, uh, that's what we deal with here. Anyway, so all these chapters we looked at a week ago, and I hope we're not lost in those because those chapters are foundational. They're foundational for the rest of the Old Testament. They're foundational for the New Testament. They're foundational for the plan of God as it unfolds in Israel and in the church. So both Israel and the church have applications to be made. And uh, hopefully we can understand this. Abraham's testimony was powerful in David's lifetime looking back to the patriarchs. So we're talking 400 years later, or or longer actually. We're talking in David's lifetime at 1000 BC. So we have Abraham at 2000 BC and David at 1000 BC, just with ballpark figures, a millennia later, and David is still writing psalms about God's faithful covenant promises to Abraham. So it demonstrates the impact that Abraham's testimony had looking back to the patriarchs and looking forward to a thousand generations. So let's, uh, again, just hold your place there in Hebrews 11. We'll get back to it. But uh, the example here is Abraham and his testimony. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out. And then by faith, he lived as an alien. That's the, uh, I think, the the impact that we have with verse 8 followed by verse 9 that he was obedient when he went out, and then he continued to occupy by faith when he lived as an alien and a stranger. Uh, First Chronicles 16, when you can see the impact this has in David's life, it's also parallel to uh, Psalm 105, but we can just stick in uh, Chronicles for this morning's purposes. You say, Pastor, why are you doing this? I don't know where Chronicles is. All right. First Chronicles. It's right before Second Chronicles. It's a big book. You can find it. Before the Psalms. First Chronicles 16. Before you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. All right, before all of that is First and Second Chronicles. It's after First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. All right. First Chronicles 16. I think that's the real reason everybody went to glass instead of paper. You can just tap the icon and you don't have to know if you're flipping forward or flipping back. Now this is an interesting uh, chapter. It's an event. Uh, the lot, uh, the uh, ark had been plundered and then they get it back. And when they get it back, there's a lot of celebration that happens. 
And uh, so David is celebrating. Uh, believers on positive volition are celebrating. And, uh, and then he writes, and then he assigns Asaph. So it says in verse 7, on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. And uh, whether they were the first among several on that day, or whether this was the first time ever Asaph was called into a music ministry, I think that's probably the better way to understand it. But verse 8, it says, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. And this is what starts this great song. And in music, I mean, what a blessing God gives us music so that our souls can just... uh shout forth and express appreciation and love and wonder and glory and everything. It's, a, it's an outlet for glory to God through song. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Remember, remember His wonderful deeds which He has done, His marvels and the judgments from His mouth. It's a command to remember And what a blessing that hymnology helps reinforce our Bible study. And hymnology helps us remember the doctrines and the promises and the principles from the Word of God. But the command to remember, God's not commanding us to do anything that He Himself is not doing because God Himself is also remembering. God Himself is remembering. All right, so remember His wonderful deeds. Uh, o seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Now this is, I think it's a big deal, all right? And I teach this as a big deal because from Abraham to David, it's only been a thousand years. But David knows that this covenant is an eternal covenant and it's to a thousand generations. Much more than a thousand years is a thousand generations. As it says here, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, he also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, the portion of your inheritance inheritance. The same language that we have in Colossians, that our Father has qualified us to the share of the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the portion of the inheritance of the saints in light. And so we have a contrast between Israel's earthly inheritance and the church's heavenly inheritance. Uh, Ours is not what we're reading here in in, uh, Psalms. Ours is not the Abrahamic promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are not a part of the nation of Israel. And so we see it here. So to you I will give this land. When they were very few in number, very few, and strangers in it. This is in the patriarchal era. This is the pre-enslavement era. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is before they went down to Egypt and became slaves for 400 years. When they were only a very few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And this is the prophecy here, and and it's exhibited in Genesis, it's exhibited through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob in in Israel's history before they became a nation, before they were forged in the adversity of Egyptian bondage. And so that testimony is uh, powerful in David's lifetime, and he's writing this uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to inspire Scripture, but the impact of that covenant that it was given to Abraham, it was, re, it was confirmed, or, yeah, confirmed to Isaac, and that uh, distinguishes Isaac with Ishmael, and then it's reconfirmed to Jacob, distinguishing Jacob from Esau. See, and uh, there's theology that goes into that, given that Isaac and, and Ishmael were half-brothers, step-brothers with different mothers, but Jacob and Esau were twins. Nevertheless, the covenant is through Jacob, not through Esau. Jacob is the one who's renamed Israel. The God of Israel is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this is to the exclusion of Ishmael, to the exclusion of Esau, 
and, uh, and so forth. It is a national covenant promise to the Jewish people as far as we understand that. All right, now I'm not going to go to Psalms because Psalms 105 is a parallel with First Chronicles 16, so we can save time there by not reading the parallel. You can just simply make note of the fact that it's Psalm 105 verses 8 through 15. We can stay in First Chronicles though and look ahead to chapter 29. First Chronicles 29. And uh, we have a separate episode in the life of David. Back in chapter 16, it was the return of the ark, when the ark had been recaptured back from, what much of a recapture, the, the Philistines were happy to get rid of it, uh, to, to give the, the ark back to the Jewish people. Um, but now, uh, David wants to build a temple. This is years later, towards the end of his life, and he's not going to be allowed to build a temple. He's told, hey, great idea, David, but you can't do it. Your son will do it because you and your son together have to paint a picture that only Christ by himself can fulfill. That David is the man of war and Solomon is the, is the man of peace. And together David and Solomon can portray both aspects of Jesus Christ. And so David's not going to be allowed to build the temple. And so uh, he's, he's going to wait until his son's generation to build it. And uh, unlike you and me and many others, that uh, when, when we get an answer no to our prayers, uh, there can be a tendency to pout about it. There can be a tendency to grumble and to take your ball and go home, to get mad at God, to say, I want to do this service and God won't let me. Well, I'll show him, fine. And we harumph and we say, I won't... Uh, if I can't do this, then I won't do anything. How about that? And uh, we just get mad and and pout and all the rest. David doesn't do any of that. David falls on his face and he worships and he sings songs and he writes scripture and he praises God and says, all right, if I can't build the temple, I can fund it. He said, I can lay up the building materials. I can pay for it. I can contract with my buddy over there in, in Lebanon for cedar. And we can, everything is going to be prepared so that the day I die, the very next morning, Solomon can get to work building the temple. That's how excited David was over being told no, over being told that his son would build the temple. And I think that's a tremendous pattern. So this is the context then in First Chronicles 29, um, King David said to the entire assembly, my son Solomon, who alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze. It's kind of a redundant verse here, but you catch the drift of this the uh, iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony, stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Put that in a scripture memory book and get to work. There's a, <laughs> that's the kind of verse that kills me is a verse with a long list of things like that. Uh, but you know what that tells me? That tells me that you ever heard that expression, the devil is in the details? It's a terrible expression. David was in the details. David was in the details. David was totally uh, on board with everything that Solomon was going to need to build that temple. Thrilled as, as punch that he was funding everything and acquiring the materials and doing all this. And he would not be physically alive to see that temple because it, Solomon wouldn't get started on it until David was dead. And that's the thrill. I think we should have that same thrill as we contribute to Austin Bible Church, as we support a ministry that we know is going to be here generations after we're gone, that this is a lampstand that's going to be here for our kids and for our grandkids and for a generation we'll never meet. See, anyway. I'm getting down now to verse 14. Trust me, I'm getting there. <laughs> There's just so much in this chapter. And whoever reads Chronicles anyway? You know, but when I'm walking down that hallway towards the nursery and I see Tilford and Albine sitting there and I'm then this flock is here and you think about sacrifices that previous generations have made and uh, we're thankful for that. All right, now David starts praying and uh, in verse 10, 
David blessed the Lord. David blessed the Lord in the sight of all of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So anything we give, it came from him in the first place. Anything we give, it's a, it's a grace provision. We, we're just responding to what was God's to begin with. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? This rhetorical question, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Are you kidding me? I get to do this? What an honor. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you, and tenants, as all our fathers were. You see this testimony of Abraham? What we're studying about, and how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how they lived as sojourners, they dwelt in tents. That the testimony Hebrews 11 is talking about, it applied in Abraham in the patriarch's time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But a thousand years later, King David is still reflecting that mindset as he writes this psalm, as he writes this, as he, in this case he's offering a prayer. In chapter 16 he was writing a psalm. But as he crafts this prayer, the, the confession is, the testimony is, is that Israel remains sojourners. They remain aliens and strangers. That the promise to Abraham has not yet been unfolded on the earth that David had conquered and he had victory over all of his enemies. He had peace on his borders, but he still had borders that were smaller than the land grant promised to Abraham. And that the kingdom of Abraham, the kingdom of the seed of Abraham is not yet on this earth. It's still thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even on David's deathbed, uh, they hadn't seen the promises. To this day, Israel has not seen the promises fulfilled. They simply see them from a distance, welcome them from, a, from afar. And so um, we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope that is apart from God and His promises. Um, and we have the, uh, the statements here. Verse 16, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. Nothing David gave was grudgingly or under compulsion because God loves the cheerful giver. And here's David living out Second Chronicles or Second Corinthians chapter eight, before uh, that was ever written. Uh, I have willingly offered all these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. The nation gave so much they had to say enough. As we have too much, here we go. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people, direct their heart to you. Nice prayer doesn't get answered though. I mean, not. it took Solomon, uh, how long was it before Solomon's heart was turned away, right? So, uh, but he's praying, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their hearts to you and give my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments your testimonies and your statutes to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Well, his prayer was answered at least long enough to get the temple built. Then after that is when Solomon's heart was turned astray with the multiplication of his wives and the idolatry that came there. So this is uh, the testimony. And we see when we study it in Hebrews 11, uh, we want to identify how powerful it is, how powerful it has always been. And with each generation between Abraham's day and, the, and, and our day, 
that the uh, testimony of, of Abraham has had that impact. This significance was also uh, powerful in Jehoshaphat's generation. Significance was revisited in Jehoshaphat's generation and again in the days of Nehemiah. So it, it just seems that each time that Israel comes out of a period of darkness, their king or their political leader, Nehemiah was never king, but he led the nation. When they came out of a time of apostasy, what brought them back were were these promises made to Abraham, the covenant made to Abraham, the promise to a thousand generations made to Abraham. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we go ahead a few more hundred years to Jehoshaphat. That's just a fun name to say. I don't, you know, Jehoshaphat. I mean, think about it. How fun is it to talk about jumping Jehoshaphat and all those things? Second Chronicles 20 and verse 7. So um, the country's being invaded and the king says, hey, I know what, we need to pray to the Lord. And uh, everybody else may be worried about it. It came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Muonites, whoever they were, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So he, he leads a national prayer meeting. There's, a, there's an idea for you. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not uh, God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out? See, isn't this a beautiful prayer? He knows the answer to all this. It's obvious. So do we. Uh, So by the way, God, weren't you the God that gave us the Abrahamic covenant? (laughs) Did you not? Didn't you redeem us out of Egypt? Didn't you drive our enemies out? That was you, right, God? And so he's reminding the Lord. He's reminding himself. He's reminding the people He's showing leadership as king over the nation to remind the people about great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. So did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? You know, Abraham, I mean, scour Genesis and find Abraham my friend. You won't find it in Genesis. You find it here. Abraham, the friend of God. They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, and um, this, uh, well, verse 7 is what I was looking at, but uh, your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever. So that impact, it still continues in David's day, in Jehoshaphat's day, again in the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8. So get past Chronicles, you get to Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. may have originally been all one book as far as the Septuagint scrolls are concerned. But Ezra, Nehemiah, what we commonly call Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. There's a national confession at work here. Um, They had some uh, intermarriage, Gentile intermarriage and defiance of God's commands. And uh, so they have to repent of that. uh, Nehemiah is going to lead them in uh, in this. So they stand before the Lord. They're going to confess their sins. And while they stood before uh, the Lord, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God as they confess. All right, then it begins in verse 5 with the praise. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. 
You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. We'll study this in Colossians, that, God is the, that Jesus is the creator of the visible and the invisible, the uh, rulers and the authorities, the heavens and their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. This is foundational to who they are as a people and it's foundational to what God has promised this particular nation. You found his heart faithful before you and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, of the Jebusite, of the Girgashite to give, you, give it to his descendants or his seed. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. What do you mean you have fulfilled your promise? Why is Nehemiah saying you have fulfilled your promise? Do they have a, a messianic kingdom on earth yet? Did I miss the millennium somewhere? How can Nehemiah say you have fulfilled your promise? I think it's a statement of faith. That's right. It views a future promise as if it has already been fulfilled. He is the God who makes good on his promise. And if we haven't seen it yet, it's only because we don't live long enough to see it unfold. And God is eternal and we're temporal beings. But nevertheless, I love the fact that that Nehemiah has the faith to view God's faithfulness as a completed act. He has never been faithless in any promise he's ever made. And so we see the power of it here. It even continues in Stephen. It even continues another thousand years into the church age now. Stephen's the first martyr. And as Stephen is preaching his final message, what does he reference? He references the Abrahamic covenant. He's preaching to Israel. So, Acts chapter 7. We're headed back to Hebrews 11 and getting closer. Acts chapter 7. Stephen's martyrdom sermon. It opened with the testimony of Abraham. Hmm. Chapter 6 closes with a couple of um, uh, deep state uh, whistleblowers. And uh, the fact is they could not argue. They were arguing with Stephen in verse 9. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So if you can't cope with truth, what do you turn to? You turn to Satan's lies. That's right. So they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So you get these uh, witness, you know, these uh, whistleblowers accusing the hearsay. Well, we heard this. We heard him speak blasphemous words. So they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, like an impeachment proceeding with no evidence. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. We heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. None of that, of course, is true. I mean, you can see little kernels of truth woven through, but it's, uh, you know, it's a paraphrase of nothing Jesus ever actually said. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Ooh, look out now. And so the high priest said, are these things so? So they, they're going to hear from the condemned. And they've already convicted him ahead of time. They know what the outcome is going to be. But they give him at least the courtesy to defend himself and to disprove a negative. Are these things so? And then what launches is a marvelous sermon that's really a walk through the Bible. It is an Old Testament survey. And he begins, hear me, brethren and fathers, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. 
That's actually a detail you don't get in Genesis 11 and 12. There's actually some fine-tuning to the history of Terah and Abraham that we glean out of here in a very interesting way. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That message came in Ur. When you read Genesis, it appears that it came in Haran. And so we understand that first reading in Genesis 12 is not the first time Abraham was given that command. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, now we can do the numbers, we can do the math, we can ask ourselves, there could be a contradiction here. Maybe the numbers don't add up. If, he was, if Terah was 75 when Abraham was born, or, then, or when Abraham was 75 when he left, and we start to do the math and we say, you know what? It almost seems like Terah could still be alive when Abraham leaves. But here it says after he died. How do we resolve the conundrum? How do we solve the, the math discrepancy? Well, could there be the consideration that Haran is that Terah is as good as dead? That he's unrepentant? That he's a moon god worshiper? That he will never worship the Lord God? Which is what maybe perhaps Abraham had hoped? Anyway, stay tuned. We're going de- to delve into this because after Hebrews is, uh, is going to be a Genesis series. And I'm looking forward to spending about five years in Genesis to go through creation and Nephilim and angels and flood and uh, young earth and gap theory. I hate the fact that gap theory is being rejected in our day and age. And, uh, and then Abraham. If the Lord delays long enough, we'll even get to Abraham. How about that? All right, where am I? Verse 4, Acts 7, 4. From there, after his father died, God God had him move to this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. Is that too much to ask? If you've been promised from the river to the river, from the Nile to the Euphrates and everything in between, if that whole segment of planet Earth is yours, is a single square foot too much to ask? Not one foot of ground in his lifetime. Yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession to him and to his seed, to his descendants after him. So a a 90-year-old man with no kid. And so we have um, this promise. And this is how Stephen begins his survey by demonstrating that God makes promises and then walking them through the exodus, walking them through the wilderness, walking them through the, uh, their history, walking them through the, uh, the kings, bringing them to Babylon and the dispersion to Babylon, bringing them back from Babylon. Not because they deserved it, but because God had made promises. And so then we get down later in the chapter and now we get references to David and to Solomon and we get um, these things. Verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Stephen knew how to build to a crescendo in his sermon. <laughs> hey, he's getting them there. And they were already riled up ready to kill him at the beginning of the chapter. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. By the way, if you have to answer the question about irresistible grace and resisting God and how God's sovereignty can't be resisted, this verse proves that God's sovereignty can be resisted. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Which you are doing just as your fathers did. Your chips off the old block. Your descendants of every apostate generation before you. Because they murdered the prophets. You're, you murdered the Christ. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Find me an Old Testament prophet that died of a ripe old age and, good, and none of them did. Daniel. Daniel did. All right, Daniel did. Because he was safely away in Babylon, he was not in Jerusalem with these rascals. 
they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Those previous generations of wicked men, they murdered every prophet that spoke of the coming Christ, and you guys murdered the Christ when he came. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. How dare you say we didn't keep the law? That's all they do all day, every day. They're the champion law keepers. Saul himself, we see at the beginning, at the end of this chapter and beginning of chapter 8, they laid their uh, robes at his feet. And Saul was in hearty agreement with them. Well, to open with the testimony of the Abrahamic covenant shows you the impact that this has. Prior to chapter 11, the book of Hebrews revealed profound aspects of Abraham's sojourn and the worship he shared with Melchizedek. So it shouldn't surprise us that in Hebrews 11, when we're recounting the stories of faith, that we're going to uh, detail elements from Abraham's life because the author of Hebrews has already encapsulated Abraham with his Melchizedek narrative back in Hebrews chapter 7. Prior to this chapter, Hebrews revealed profound aspects of Abraham's sojourn and the worship he shared with Melchizedek. And so you can read Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. Remember this? We did all this work on Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he was king of a city. Today we call it Jerusalem. Salem is a shorter form of Jerusalem. It's the Salem without the Jeru. Okay? Well, I mean, if you're a king of El Elyon, if you're a priest of God Most High, and the covenant name of Yahweh was not revealed to you because that was reserved for Moses' day to be revealed to Israel, the significance of of Yahweh as the I Am, well, then you're going to be king of... You're not going to know about Yahweh being the, the, the I Am, being the king of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not surprising to me that uh, Jerusalem is not yet Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is still Salem in, uh, in this uh, pre-Mosaic era. But this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of El Elyon, the Most High God, who met Abraham as Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And so here's a king in the Abrahamic land grant. He shouldn't be king of Salem if that land belongs to Abraham. But see, God makes the promise and God has not yet fulfilled the promise. So Melchizedek is still king of Salem. Melchizedek is still priest of God Most High. Because we don't have a Levitical priesthood yet. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of the booty, of the plunder from those four kings. And this is a dynamic at work. And after the blessing and after the tithe, they sat down and took communion. I can't explain how they took communion, but it's bread and wine like we take communion with bread and wine. Not a church age communion, not even a dispensation of Israel communion, although it is dispensation of Israel, age of promise. There is no law procedure given in Moses that matches what Melchizedek and Abraham did here on this day for a a Jewish prophet to uh, worship with a Gentile prophet as they did on this day. And the lesser served the greater, by the way. Abraham was under Melchizedek's blessing. That becomes developed here in Hebrews 7. First of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Melech is king, Tzedek is righteous. Then also king of Salem. What does the city mean? The city means peace, shalom. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Remember this? You know, the person Melchizedek had all those things. 
But the narrative of the Melchizedek story, the Melchizedek character in the Bible story, had none of those things. He just shows up out of nowhere as a prophet, priest, and king without genealogy, without birth, without death. And he is made like the Son of God, remains a priest perpetually. He becomes the archetype of a king-priest in the way that Genesis records his narrative. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And this is huge. This is, this is part of the argument that the Messiah is greater than any Old Testament character. That the Messiah is greater than Abraham. The Messiah is greater than Aaron. The Messiah is greater than Moses. Messiah is greater than David. Messiah will sit on the throne of David. He's the son of David, but the greater son of David. And this is all a part of the logic of, of Hebrews that's showing the gloriousness of the Christ. Christ above all, see. And um, theoretically, th- this is the line of argumentation that's going to keep these priests from going back to Jerusalem and, and repenting of their church age testimony, of going back to being uh, Levitical priests again uh, and to die with the rest of them as Jerusalem is destroyed. All right. So that's the testimony from chapter 7. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews references Abraham's faith. And we get details here we don't have in Genesis, we don't have in Psalms, we don't have in Chronicles, we don't have in Acts, we don't have anywhere except here. Nowhere else do we have the divine commentary that when Abraham was living by faith, he was looking for the city with foundations. He was looking for heaven to come to earth. Hebrews references Abraham's faith as prophetically forward-looking to the arrival of a heavenly city. The arrival of a heavenly city. So when we see these things in chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, as we come to these again and again and again, we understand that these are questions in Genesis, answers in Hebrews. They are not answers in Genesis. Hebrews 11 and verse 10. He was looking for the city which has foundations. Not just a temple with foundations, not just a house with foundations, not just a a building, but a city. An entire city that's in itself a building. An entire city that is in itself a, um, shall we say, a mansion that our Savior has gone to prepare. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And so Abraham was looking for that a thousand years before David, two thousand years before Jesus. And Genesis never even writes about it. But Hebrews clues us in. This is what he was looking forward to. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham prophetically saw so many things that Genesis never records Abraham as having seen. But Jesus clues us in. The author of Hebrews clues us in. And we're thankful for these things. Abraham's faith was prophetically forward-looking to the arrival of a heavenly city. Verse 10 a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Twelve foundations, by the way. Going to have the foundation stones and the names written on those stones. Whose architect and builder is God. The Father's the architect. The Son is the builder. And it's not just the Son uh, by Himself, but it's the Son in hypostatic union as, uh, as it was in the first creation. Verse 16 here in chapter 11. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So how can I turn an earthly country into a heavenly country? Abraham had walked the length and breadth of Canaan, and God said, everywhere your foot walks, that's yours. Everything you can see, that's yours. And he walked on an earthly land to see a promise, but his spiritual eyes also saw a heavenly land. And so what can turn an earthly land into a heavenly land? 
was the arrival of this city. As it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And this, there's so much imagery that's at work here. You know, and, and when, when Cain was sent out after murdering Abel, what did he do? He went out and he built a city. Now here's Abraham looking for a city. But he's not going to go out. He's going to stay here. He's going to wait. He's going to wait for the city to arrive. He's going to wait for God Himself to build it. The architect and builder is God. And when that city arrives, when that prepared city arrives, then Abraham's land will become a heavenly land. It will become a heavenly country. Because they desire a better country. And it's going to be there. That's why it's so unbiblical to argue and debate and bargain with some of the land. And every time Israel tries to buy peace with land, they lose because they get no peace and they just gave up more land. Every time. When we get over to chapter 12, another glimpse. You know, there's so much more to say. I think we're going to talk some more. When am I going to get into this? The... um, Mm. I'm going to get into this when we're down in verses 13 through 16. That's why. Um, The uh, opportunity to return. The Exodus generation did not have an opportunity to return because the Red Sea came crashing down and they were on the saved side of things and no one had the opportunity to return. No one ever did return. They died in the wilderness. No one had the opportunity to return to Egypt. But the patriarchs did. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had the opportunity to return. And they could have returned to the land of the Chaldeans. They could have returned to the moon god. They could have returned to the customs of of their fathers. The idol worshipers that they were. But they chose not to. And that's the point. It's a very profound point. All right, chapter 12. Now we did not come to Mount Zion, to Mount Sinai rather, We didn't come to the wilderness mountain that Moses went up and the people stayed at the bottom. That terrifying mountain. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched to the blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. They were terrified. They said, Moses, go up there and come back. Tell us what God says. (laughs) <laughs> they did not they they were happy to be as far away at the base of that mountain and not go up there for they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain you will be stoned and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I am full of fear and trembling and yet he had to go up there but you have come to Mount Zion now this is the contrast Israel was one thing here's the church Here's what we've come to. And we come to this when we come to God by faith in Christ. You have come to Mount Zion, that's the heavenly, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So that earthly Mount Zion is just named after the heavenly Mount Zion. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The church of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Thank you. Colossians chapter 1. The firstborn of all creation. What a joy that we have Colossians and Hebrews just weaving together this way. You have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to... uh, And this... The spirits of the righteous made perfect. We'll do some work on this. This is not an easy text. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Covenant that will be coming to earth when he enacts it with Israel. And to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So again, in verse 22, there's a city. And Abraham was looking for that city. And Abraham was looking for that city to come. And Abraham was looking for that city to arrive and to turn his land into a heavenly land. 
chapter 13 and verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city. See, we're to be heavenly minded. We're to be uh, occupied. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. That's verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. If you get sidetracked, where you're all wrapped up in the, in the ritual and you lose the reality, how sad is that? We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is our altar. And we eat there all we should all day, every day, feasting with the Lord, learning from the, uh, the Word of God. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him outside the camp. We must be willing to take up our cross and suffer even as Jesus did, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is our position in Christ. This is our blessing and our benefit looking for this city. The city is ours, by the way. The city that comes down out of heaven, it is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It is not for Israel. The foundation stones have Israel's names. Israel will come to visit. We live there. Israel is still going to live on this earth. Israel is going to have a portion, the land grant divided on this earth. That city is ours. They come to visit. They come to visit. So Abraham and his faith was prophetically looking forward to the arrival of this city. I think there were other glimpses as well. Abraham was not the only prophet that looked forward to a heavenly city. Psalm 48, Psalm 87, Jesus himself prophesied it when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. familiar with these? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. You think that's talking about the earthly Jerusalem? Not for a minute. Maybe you could take it that way. And perhaps some earthly-minded Israelites might exactly take it that way. Beautiful in elevation, The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And when we talk about Mount Zion in the far north, that's not geography that describes the earthly Mount Zion. When we're talking about the far north, we're talking about passages that that speak to the angelic um, realm that speak to, and it's, it's wrong to call it geography because geo is earth, so it's, it's urography, it's, it's angelicography, uh, drawing an angel map of, of Satan's rebellion. This was a seat he lusted after. He said, I will take my seat on the Mount of the Assembly in the recesses of the north. It's a heavenly setting, not an earthly setting. And the earthly Mount Zion is not particularly elevated, It's not particularly high, but this one certainly will be. And the heavenly Jerusalem already is. The heavenly Mount Zion, how high is that? So beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. And so something has to be made known. Something has to go from heaven to earth. Something has to be manifested on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
This is a description of the heavenly Zion. And yet the wish is that God will make himself known as a stronghold. So uh, anyway, there's, there's more. This is a, it's an interesting uh, psalm in Psalm 78 or 48. How about Psalm 87? A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of thee are spoken. O Zion, city of our God. Right? We sing that hymn. We act like it's ours. Wait a minute. And which Zion is being spoken of here? The earthly Zion or the heavenly Zion? I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. When we get into these, we're talking Rahab is a poetic name for Satan. We're talking about the, the pierced serpent. This is uh, in angelic geography, angelic heavenography, that this is, uh, this is the heavenly Zion being spoken of here, of which the earthly Zion is just a, a replica. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High Himself will establish her. Where was, uh, where was the Lord birthed? Not in earthly Zion. Earthly Bethlehem, right? In a manger. But what about the humanity of Jesus? Where was He birthed? Before there was an earth. Before there were mountains. When all there was was God Himself in the heavenly places. This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will count when He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flutes, shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. All right, more to study. Some of this goes back to the pre angelic past, and some of this looks forward to the fullness of times. Psalm 48, Psalm 87, I'll just tell you now, that's not the earthly Zion in view. It's not the earthly Jerusalem in view. It's the heavenly Jerusalem in both Psalms. John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, mansions, condominiums. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and he did. He established the, uh, he gave the nations their inheritance. He established Israel as the firstborn. And so every believing Jew, every believing Gentile in the resurrection is not only going to have a land grant, they're not only going to have an inheritance that's going to be theirs for a possession, but they're also going to have a residence within the Father's house. They're going to have a place to go and visit when they're worshiping before the Father. But something that doesn't exist yet is a place for the bride. In my Father's house are, presently now, already existing many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare, notice, a thing not yet in existence for a people not yet in existence. The bride does not yet exist, not till Pentecost. The church does not yet exist. But a heavenly people, a heavenly people without Uh, that are neither Jew nor Gentile. And they don't have a place yet in the Father's house because they don't exist yet in the unfolding of the Father's plan. But when the church is birthed, Jesus Christ Himself is preparing our place. I go to prepare a place for you. And this is why when it talks about that new Jerusalem, it's made ready, prepared as a bride, prepared for her husband. This is what Jesus has been doing. Preparing our place. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await a Savior who will transform the body of our humble state. 
He's been in heaven preparing our home. He hasn't been in the earthly Jerusalem preparing our home. So when he comes to receive us to himself, we meet him in the air, and he doesn't take us to the earthly Jerusalem. He takes us to the heavenly Jerusalem. Simple, right? Revelation 21. I've got to close with this. I'm running out of time. Then I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Then I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Everything God has been preparing, everything Jesus has been preparing. Down to verse 10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. I believe John was taken out of his body, brought to heaven to show this mountain and this city. Showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of clear crystal jasper. It had twelve, it had great high wall with twelve gates. At the gates were twelve angels. The names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Talks about the gates, talks about their foundation stones. The wall of the city had twelve foundation stones. On them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Anyway, you can read some more on that as well. I'm just out of time. Father, I thank you for heavenly Jerusalem. I thank you that our Savior is preparing it even now. Father, I pray that we are heavenly minded, that we uh, function biblically as the patriarchs did, as uh, aliens and strangers in a land that's not ours. Father, I thank you for the example of Abraham, the example of Isaac and Jacob, the example the patriarchs set. I pray also uh, we're going to see the Sarah side of things next week. Sarah laughed and denied laughing. I pray that we can have laughter ourselves as we rejoice over the marvel that you have promised. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.